Welcome to another episode of Coaching Leaders. Today, we will explore with Dr. Helena Boshi how neuroscience helps us understand why we do what we do and how to use it to our advantage. I have learned the neuroscience behind feedback sandwich and why it doesn't work. I have also learned how our brain responds towards but and because and how to use them to persuade people. As a feedback nerd, my favorite part was about the evil sibling of placebo, nocebo, and how it impacts feedback conversations. So let's get right into it. Coaching Leaders with Dr. Helena Boshi. First and foremost, Helena, thank you very much for being so generous with your time and sharing it with me today in my audience. I really appreciate that. It's a pleasure to be here, Raf, and to be working with you today. Look, when I grabbed your book, Helena, Why We Do What We Do, what I really appreciate about this book is that it helps people like myself understand better what's happening in our brain. And as a result of that, how to become a better human being and better leader. But I'm curious, what led you to write this book? What's your path that you've become such an expert in neuroscience and and really connect in such a simple way, knowledge with practicality? Well, I came to the world of neuroscience and psychology late uh, for most scientists. I was I was someone who studied the arts and the humanities and uh, marketing, and I did a Latin degree. But increasingly, um, as I moved into the world of training and I was starting to do talks to people, I was trying to find answers about why we were doing certain things. Mm -hmm. And that led me to try and understand, first of all, how adults learn, how we learn, how we learn at work, how we learn from each other. So that was my first qualification, if you like, after my Latin degree, I started to move much more into the world of human, of adult learning and psychology. And that led me to do my PhD in entrepreneurial learning, what makes people different to the conventional norms, how Mm -hmm. do people break out of um, society's expectations and yet make a success of their lives. I wanted to see Mm. how entrepreneurs learned versus people following a more traditional route and trajectory. And then that led me to really try and do a much deeper dive into the brain. And once I started learning about the brain, I found I couldn't stop because Mm. it is such a wonderful, mysterious, fantastic instrument that we know so much and so little about. Mm. I'm still learning every day. So, uh, you know, like Socrates says, you know, or said in the second century BC, I know that I know nothing but it, it's really spurred me to keep learning. Yeah, and, and now are exciting times for everyone who's really diving deep into neuroscience because of the fMRI scans gives you, we, we no longer have to guess. Like in the past, it was like, oh, I think that's what it happens. That's the theory. And we did some research and we got this some data. Now you can literally look inside of the brain and say, actually, this is what happens when we do thing. And those are the potential lessons. And of course, there is so much to learn moving ahead. But to me, thanks to neuroscience, now I'm not studying it, but I've read several books because I am fascinated with it as well. I'm trying to understand why we are so irrational with feedback conversations. And I'll get to that question in a few minutes, but I'm curious to find out now, because for me, neuroscience busts certain myths, creates more hammer moments, or offered us an evidence to something that we always thought that is the case, but we just don't know why it happens. And I found so many different examples in your book, but I'm curious when you do your talks, when you, when you speak in front of people, when you share your wisdom, what are the two or three things that really always gets this aha moment in people? And we are all surprised with learning something interesting. Do you know, and the more we learn, even though, you know, we, we are much more enlightened now, as you've said, we understand much more about what the brain is all about and how it responds to certain things. What I find frustrating and also quite depressing is that organizations still insist on using techniques that do more damage than good Hmm. and also follow, you know, follow the paths of people who actually destroyed their employees. Jack Welch is a case in point. He did more harm to his employees than than good because of his rank and yank system and his forced distribution, which is still very much alive and well in companies today. So 
It's, it's yes, and I and I get into trouble with with HR departments because particularly at the moment where I'm saying to people, you know, emotions are running high. You know, we are in a state of uncertainty and of mm. course, consequent anxiety. Why, why is there the need to put people through a process that we know causes some degree of anxiety? Why are we doing it, especially now when people's emotions are at an all-time high and yet they still feel they need to. So I do get into trouble because I say things I probably shouldn't say because it's going against their norms. So let's just take a step back. Why why does um, certain this, the feedback model that we traditionally use, which is known mm -hmm. as the feedback sandwich, yeah. plays areas for development, which is really criticism and then praise again. And we think because we top and tail it with a positive statement that we've uh, sweetened the pill and that people will accept it and nothing mm -hmm. could be further than the truth. Because if we think back to how we're designed and the brain is designed to avoid death. It is a, a, it avoids anything, first and foremost, that is potentially threatening. Mm -hmm. And once it sees anything that feels potentially threatening, it starts to activate a system that puts us into our primary stress response or one of the stress responses we have, which is our fight or flight system, otherwise known mm -hmm. as the sympathetic nervous system. So that activates whenever there's even the merest suggestion or hint mm -hmm. or threat. So Raph, if I said to you, uh, can I give you some feedback? Uh, because the word feedback is so loaded yes. with possible and potential criticism or threat, immediately your brain is saying, uh-oh, this doesn't feel right. I know I'm about to get a hammering or even something I don't want to hear let me protect you and so the brain makes sure that all we then focus on is survival yes so the word feedback uh is something that carries what's called the nocebo effect and in latin mm. the nocebo nocebo means i will harm and this is something we need to remember change is another one you know if we hear change mm -hmm. or the oxymoron change management which is like new normal or like deafening silence <laughs> or passive aggressive. You're putting two opposing things together. The brain just doesn't respond well to that. So what happens when the brain hears a word that carrying this nocebo effect mm -hmm. has the opposite effect of a placebo, which in Latin means I will please. And so mm -hmm. immediately the brain says, uh, this, it, this could potentially harm me. Uh, and so it stimulates the mechanisms preparing us for pain. And that is essentially what's happening. So if mm -hmm. I said to you, I've got some feedback for you, you said to me, you, you know, Helena, I've got some feedback for you. Immediately, I'm not thinking, yippee, I can't wait. Immediately, I'm thinking, uh-oh, what's coming next? Yes. Don't really hear or benefit from what's coming next. Now, this doesn't mean we should, uh, we should avoid these conversations, but there is a time and a place yes. to to do it. And we've got to think about, first of all, why are we giving this feedback? For whose benefit? Mm -hmm. And it's for the giver's benefit, by the way. It's not yeah. for the recipient, it's for the giver's benefit. Why are we giving this feedback? What are we trying to achieve? Um, and how will we know when we've got it? And we've got to really ask those questions. And if we're mm -hmm. genuinely giving feedback or some suggested path to improvement, then we need to think about really how to structure the conversation and how when to give the feedback so there there's a time and a place but but really and truly we need to be separating the positive messages from the negative messages because if we're trying to give a positive message mm -hmm. and we infect it by uh, an area for development or or a suggested criticism mm -hmm. that's what the brain will hear and that's what the brain will hook onto so everything positive going around it the pieces of bread outside become irrelevant. And that's the exact reason why I was so excited about this conversation, because you really helped me unpack and understand what's happening exactly now. So my thought process is very much like yours, although I don't have these insights, I advise strongly against using that sentence, I have some feedback for you. In fact, using the word feedback as often as possible in the workplace. And the simplest example that I always share is like, when you're going to your son or to your partner, you're not saying that you have some feedback for them. You're not saying I'm going to have some positive feedback. No, you have a conversation that is rooted in your 
purest intention to help and we need to do the same thing in the workplace and from my perspective when you say this hey i have some feedback for you people are in the defensive state and i so so quite frequently what i'm saying is your first few seconds are crucial because that's when your the brain will decide whether i lean in or step back the i have some feedback for you is just like i'm stepping back because it's like you know like we burn our hand against the stove in the past that's the bad that manager who handled feedback badly in the past as well so any potential again exposure to that burn will just go like this and so that's that's exactly how i view feedback the, 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 the intonation of it will create the same thing and you've mentioned certainty as well and uncertainty you know that positive feedback that feedback sandwich which by the way was the first and pretty much the only feedback training that i received as a manager which doesn't work as you said but what happens eventually is when i get that praise I'm expecting this criticism and as you mentioned that nocebo effect just kicks in and I'll be just anticipating already floating in in the cortisol or waiting for what's happening next that uncertainty is just going to eat us alive until it happens and so we just get tuned out from the positive and focus on what's happening and when the shoe will drop Yes exactly and the, the yes the 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 big problem of course is that we are primed now you're right we're primed now that once soon as we start hearing the positive we are priming ourselves and preparing ourselves mm-hmm. and priming the memory effect on the brain so even the positive words that come before um are preparing us we'll start to carry the nocebo effect too because they're preparing us for the meaty negative middle or the cheese in the middle if you're a vegetarian mm-hmm. and then so you know but we do need to think about how we improve performance and there are ways to do that but it has to be timing we have to take the responsibility for this if we're coaching people or really really wanting to help improve their performance and give them some guidance it's all about the timing so we need to think about you know if, if they've just done something uh, that's mm-hmm. that's gone really well and maybe there are some areas where they can improve immediately after the activity you focus on what they did well because you're going to get more of that next time you're going to mm-hmm. nail it in you're going to make them feel proud about the specific thing they did well and the key thing is here here is to be specific so that they know exactly what they did well not mm-hmm. generalized good job that went really well but really specifically what they what went really well and that's all you say that's all you focus them on immediately after the event but immediately before the next event so you need to you know as coaches as leaders we need to have this at the back of our heads and this is why you know we we carry so much responsibility for other people's brain power uh, we have the health of other people's brains in our own hands so we've mm-hmm. got really you know value that and pay attention to it so immediately before the next event we then suggest to them by the way I've had some ideas about what you can do to, you know, answer the questions better or put your slides together in a different way. Can we have a sit down and discuss it or can we have a quick meeting uh, and we can run through. Now that doesn't feel like anything other than guidance or help. It certainly doesn't feel like a criticism. It feels like something that's going to help improve the performance for next time. And that's our job. Our job is not to beat someone up after the event because mm-hmm. know that we need to give feedback because it makes us feel good and powerful as leaders that's not it at all and that's the absolutely wrong intention behind feedback yes most certainly so it's about really framing it so our brain perceives it as as a reward as an opportunity and we don't tap into that nocebo effect and and we don't see it as a threat and the way i understand and please help me out here is i see the challenge with the feedback that most often it pretty much it simplifies to I'm trying to blow your candle off to make mine shine brighter. So meaning I'm increasing my social status, diminishing yours through that challenging feedback. And if that's the perception, the intention doesn't really doesn't really matter here because we need to focus on that a perception of it. You know, you've mentioned this. I have some feedback for you. My intention is to help you. But if I start with great intentions, hey, I have some feedback for you. I already triggered your defensive state, right? And so now all you all you're doing is you preserve yourself with with defending yourself. And so we got to be we got to be um, specific here and trying to frame everything as often as frequent possible so you are the primary beneficent of that feedback so you benefit from it and grow and improve rather than feeling like I'm 
being diminished. My social status is being diminished. Yes, it's all about the time. So in a way, you know, improving someone's performance is not about looking back. It's mm -hmm. about looking forward. So in mm -hmm. a way, it's feeding forward. It's feeding into the next activity. And, you know, even if that next activity is three months later, it's our job as the guardians of other people's brains. It's mm -hmm. our job know that and to have that at the back of our mind so that we know that we can help encourage and improve someone to do a better job next time and that is what we you know if we have the responsibility for leadership or for coaching someone that's what we have to bear in mind and you know i've looked over and over at how organizations still carry out uh, their feedback conversations and it's still mm. you know it still upsets me because even though i you know, we all know that it doesn't work, that people are reluctant to do something really different. It just shows how lazy we are as a species because we do mm. have a brain that finds the quickest, easiest and most energy efficient route through to anything. And so changing something that's become rooted in organizational behavior is going to be quite a difficult thing to do. If, if I had my way, I would scrap the whole system. I would just get... Mm to get used to having these ongoing performance conversations. You don't need this cumbersome, time-consuming process yes, in the yes. middle of our working life. It does, it, I think it's become very irrelevant now, especially at the moment. Mm. I'm glad that you've mentioned because when I decided to pursue my path career, which is a feedback coach, I said to myself, well, I'm, I'm not going to use any formats that exist. I'll be very careful what I read and consume that is really attached to the old system and i'm going to use all my knowledge as an athlete because you know i've been for 14 years a professional athlete and that has its own specifics when it comes to feedback and it is all the time real time in the moment and it's all about me and in the workplace it's different and so i promised myself i'm going to explore different ways and and um, materials out there available to me so i can understand this irrational relationship and change it and and i do believe the answer is real-time normal conversations not scripted not scheduled ahead of the time because again it's, it's going back to the certainty like in the three months time or two weeks time, even if it's in a two weeks time we're going to have a feedback conversation so in a way organizations are saying okay annual prices don't work we're going to make it every six months and some go i'll be better i'll do every three months and then another manager comes in well i'm going to increase a frequency of feedback in our company i'm going to do it every four weeks you haven't solved any problem. In fact, you're creating more stress more frequently because that anticipation to what's going to happen in four weeks' time creates a lot of stress responses in between. And, and therefore, the real-time ad hoc conversations are is the answer, in my opinion, like you mentioned. Yeah, and it's exactly. And if you've been an athlete, you'll know exactly this, that coaches of athletes will look at every single movement that goes into mm. the execution of uh, whether it's a tennis stroke or a kick of a football or you know bounce of a basketball then it's it's all about the inputs that go in to execute that action and coaches have to look at all the inputs they have to look at how what's being done to get people to a certain point and that's where you target it's real time it's getting staying close to your people it's understanding uh, what they're doing, not micromanaging, because that's very stressful for the brain as well. Yeah. But it's about allowing people the freedom to try, uh, watching, and then giving gentle, consistent, and constant guidance, and just tweaking, adjusting all the time. That's the best thing we can do, because mm -hmm. then it feels much more fluid, more natural, and, and people thrive under that kind of uh, support. Yeah, and it was interesting, like, if you ask anyone what's the best examples of feedback that you've received in coaching conversation, it will be exactly that. And yet, because of the lack of the support, we do what we've always been doing or what we see others doing. We revert back to the old ways of sharing feedback and navigating through it. You've mentioned that, that you know, our brain, in a way, it's quite lazy, is looking for the easiest and simplest ways to solve certain things. And when I read about the labels in your book, to me, that's one of the examples, one of the problems with feedback that we have, because when managers are sharing positive feedback, more often than not, it is that label, it is that assumption, that literally abbreviation of that. I just, this is the conclusion that I have. And I just, hey, thank you very much. I'm proud of you without context. 
when we're shooting, um, challenging feedback, quite often it is like you are not X and Y, you're not doing enough X and Y, or you are X and Y. And those labels are quite harmful. So I'd love to explore it with you why we are so used to communicating with labels and what's the impact of it? Well, it, the, the simple answer is that it just makes everybody's job a lot easier. If you label mm. someone extrovert or an introvert or red or yellow, then you you can predict how they're going to behave. And the brain is, that is the job of the brain. It's to make predictions because mm. it's encased in darkness. It sits inside our skull and it receives sensory input. It's called sense data or sensory data through our sensory organs. And there is a lag. There is a slight delay. We live life in a slight delay all the time. Because by the time the information comes into the brain and by the time we've decided what to do about it, mm -hmm. there has been this, this moment, this lapse, this neural delay. And so the brain has got to be able to predict quickly. So it is a prediction machine. It's a pattern mm -hmm. prediction machine. It'll fill in gaps. It'll tell us what to do as quickly as it can. So the best way to describe this is if you are thirsty, Raf, and you drink water, you will feel immediately that your thirst has been quenched. Mm -hmm. Now your thirst can't possibly have been quenched. And there you go, you're drinking water now. Your thirst can't possibly have been quenched in that split second because mm -hmm. the water has not reached all your tissues. You won't know the benefit of that water. Mm. So the brain knows what quenching thirst feels like. So it's tricking you into saying that water has worked. So that's a really... Yeah simple uh, way of describing how the brain works as a prediction machine. So knowing mm. that we like to be, we like to be able to predict easily. And this is why um, in organizations, we like to feel that we can predict people's behavior because then mm -hmm. it, what we, how we behave with them, how we respond to them, it makes all of that easier. So we cut through all the other stuff and we can say, right, well, that person is an extrovert and therefore this is how I'm going to behave. Um, even though I'm an introvert. Now, on one level, the intention is very good because it's all about understanding that we're all different. So even though I might be this person, if I know that that person is different and carries a different label, I might be able to adjust my behavior. The big problem is, though, is that sometimes we treat people according to their label. Mm -hmm. We don't see the human being as an organic, developing, changing uh, thing in our world, we see the human being as having this label. And so if we, mm -hmm. if we are looking for certain behaviors in someone else, according mm -hmm. to the label, that's exactly what we're going to see because the brain has got, always sees what it expects to see. Yeah. Uh, expectations drive results. And so if we think somebody's going to behave in a yellow way, a green way, an extrovert way, an introvert way, uh, a creative way, a non-creative way, uh, an emotional way, a logical way, then they will. We will get the behavior we expect to see. So it denies people the opportunity to be anything different. It becomes a diminishing, limiting process. And we don't then see the possibility in that person to do hmm. something else. Wow. So what I hear here is that our confirmation bias also kicks in. So if I labeled you in a certain way, then my confirmation bias will also get into the process. Yeah. And now, you know, I'll stay that way. So if I label you in a negative light, as in you're not a good potential, you're a lazy person, <laughs> or you, you're not really receiving feedback well, then my nature, my, my, ne my negativity bias and, and my confirmation bias here will kick in the way I see it. And well, it's not worth spending my limited time that I have with that person on coaching, sharing feedback and having conversations because it's a waste of my time and I'm super busy. I'm overwhelmed. So, okay, he's lazy. He's not a good potential. My intention, my attention doesn't go there. I need to focus here. Yeah. Is that what's happening? Yes, because you see, we're living in a world now where we are being bombarded by inputs from everywhere, particularly mm -hmm technology so the brain is having to deal with vast amounts of data and information it can't possibly deal with mm -hmm. so it, it makes a choice because it has to predict so it decides to do one of two things either it does nothing or it it, it adopts these mental shortcuts they, these are called heuristics mm 
yeah. and biases are part of these heuristics. Now, if we spent a lot of brain power trying to figure out how to deal with everything and consciously attend to every single thing that came into us from our environment, we would our, our head would explode. You know, we don't have the yeah. brain power to do that. So our biases, our heuristics form part of our psychological immune system because they help us deal with everything that's coming in at us and labeling is one of these ways that we can cut through quickly and deal with you know when we when we have when we have limited amount of time mm -hmm. and an energy then labels become an efficient route through to decision making about people mm -hmm. fortunately uh, we become that label and so we exist and sometimes we believe the label to be true about ourselves so we don't explore our own creative potential or our own you know areas that so we don't we don't embark on voyages of self-discovery we just stay within the safe confines mm -hmm. of the label we've been assigned since we were in our 20s and that is who we are we become fixed and we stop learning and this is who we are mm. I mentioned at the beginning that thanks to neuroscience, we can move past certain uh, boss and myths and ways of dealing and doing things in the past. And one thing that I just got into my mind when you were explaining those labels is the question about personality tests. You know, there is loads of different tools available out there when managers and employees going through and then, okay, so I'm personality, da, da, da. this is who I am, da, da, this is who's, who's him. And then, we're, okay, so if that's the person, that's how I'm going to deal with a person. How does that now interfere with what we just spoke about the labels? Is it, is it still valid or we need to take some adjustment? Is it a good thing or batting those personality traits? Uh, sorry, that's... Yes to both questions, because it's good in the sense that it helps us understand ourselves better. So we've always got to try and understand ourselves better through a variety of lenses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, remember what I said, the brain is naturally lazy and, you know, we mm -hmm. form habits that are uh, part of the brain's way of conserving energy because our frontal lobe, where we need to pay attention and learn new things, it needs to be freed up to be able to take on new learning. So it makes its other job is to make, is to push things out and, and start to make things cognitively automatic. And these automatic processes are known as habits and routines and expertise. So we are able to, uh, we're able to, you know, create these, um, these routines and expertise all the time. But the big problem is that we then don't uh, we don't look beyond ourselves. So we mm -hmm. accept that uh, once we've become expert at something, we then don't try and look beyond it. And trying mm -hmm. to change something that we have become expert at it involves a rewiring of the brain. Literally, the brain yes. has to rewire around. So coming back to your question about personality tests, sometimes it's good for us to see through multiple lenses, what we have become expert at. And if we want to try and learn something else, they might give us some insights into what we, what we can and can't do at this moment in time, but hopefully gives us the incentive to be able to break certain patterns and routines and try mm -hmm. something. So that's where their value lies. The big problem is though, of course, that once we've done these tests and we have this report that tells us who we are, we stick to it and we yeah. remain very wedded to it. And we then think, well, this is me. This is who I am. Uh, and again, it, it can be very, very self-limiting. So everything has to be taken with a little bit of a pinch of salt, you know, a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, maybe who I am at this point in time. It's situational. It's a reflection of my life today, but it doesn't mean it's a reflection of my life tomorrow. And if I choose to learn something new or try new avenues or walk down unfamiliar paths and try and carve out new routines and new things to, to practice and, and start to do better, then you know that personality test a year ago may not be true of me to, mm. to the new me of tomorrow. So this is what we have to always, they're, they're, a, they're a snapshot in time. They're not yeah. who we are forever. That's a really, that's really good, really good point. And uh, the other risk that I personally see now, I haven't taken like really extensive big one in my life. Uh, but the risk that I see personally here is that again, because my brain is quite selective, I can say, oh, actually, yeah, 
that is who I am because this is who I want to be. And that tells me that who I am. Yeah, I'll pick this one. I like this one. And oh yeah, I, I, I knew that this person isn't this and that just confirms it. That's, now that's exactly what's happening here. And I'm going to stick to it as it as if it's a Bible now, as it's just the rule and there is no deviation from it and there is, we can't move away from it. Uh, so that's the way I tend to look at it. And uh, I'd rather be more sort of take my step back and, and be more curious rather than just looking at it because I know even my brain will, will just trick me to thinking, yeah, that's just exactly what it is. And I knew that's what it is and, and I'm happy with it, right? Exactly. Um, so I, I'm quite cautious, but I'd love to, it's great to hear your side here as well. So what would be a way of countering labels? Like how do I prevent myself from sharing and, and creating them I know I won't be able completely, but there are time and place when I, when I just have to. How would you advise me to counter this tendency of creating labels? Labels in ourselves or in other people? Let's just say in other people, in terms of feedback yeah, is like, you know, hey, he is an extrovert or hey, she is lazy or he's, you know, he's, he doesn't care about his job and, and so on and so forth. Well, I think, you know, the, the key thing is get to know people. There are lots of examples of where people have struggled under one manager, but thrived and, and, and you know, blossomed under other managers, the same person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think get to know people, get to know what their aspirations are, their goals, what's driving them. Uh, the brain is designed to do, to either go for stuff so to approach stuff and to seek out opportunity but it's also designed to avoid so this balance has always got to be we need to be made aware of that so find out what what you know where people are driven to get things and also what they're holding back what they're avoiding because that they're the that's the basic the basic motivation of the brain is are mm -hmm. those so we seek out opportunities to get stuff or to avoid stuff all the time. So once you get to know people and you understand what's driving them and what's holding them back, then we understand a little bit more about them. But I would, I would caution against listening to other people's views. So if we're, for example, if we're inheriting a team mm -hmm. um, and we're given, uh, you know, a rundown of the people on the team and say, yes, you know, well, watch out for that person or that person's great at this or, I would caution against all of that because once we've heard it, it's very difficult to unhear it. So yes. it will be in our head. It's known as the anchoring effect. We will anchor to mm -hmm. other people's views. And, and like it or not, we will have been affected by it. We can't have unheard it once we've heard it. So I would you know, keep away from other people's opinions of the team if you're inheriting a team or mm -hmm. you know, you've been made a team leader of another team. You know, find out. Find out about the people on your own terms and, and don't read anything about them. Keep a very open mind and, and be curious about them. Really ask, get to know them because it's only when we get to know people as individuals do we really understand what they're all about and what's driving them in, in their work. And then we, then we can be much more tailored and targeted in the guidance we give with them. But mm -hmm. once people feel that they've been treated as individuals, then they tend to work really well because they feel special you know they feel that somebody is out there looking after them and then really cares about their career their mm -hmm. personal professional growth them as people you know we are all human beings trying to figure figure out this world together and it's important mm. to keep that in mind i really like this uh, this advice here because for everyone who listens now and thinks, well, this is not always how we've been done in my company and this is extra time on my plate. I'm really busy taking over a new team. The, ben the biggest benefit that I see by doing so is that you will be a lot more fair manager leader because you'll cut through a lot of assumptions and the you avoid the anchoring effect and you can be a fair, better leader, a more fair leader. This is what we all want. And so that's one of the ways when you can avoid moving away from that goal that you have. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I like it. It's the first time I hear actually that advice. It's oh, great. I well, love it. I never, never thought about it. It's because it's always been that way. You, you're taking over, you're working with X and Y, and then he's good at this, he's good at that. He does, he's not good at this. He tends to do this. And you're like, yeah, okay, fair enough, thanks. Now I just, we don't think that we just, the anchor effect just kicked in. And we like to think of ourselves, I've got my own free will. I will not allow myself to be swayed by someone else's opinions. I'll create my own opinions 
And this yeah. is just foolish and childish ways of thinking. Uh, and there's so many, so much evidence of that suggesting that actually we are not as rational and with the, with the free will as we think or believe the way it is. Um, no, we're definitely not. no, and you know, if we just take on other people's heuristics or mental shortcuts or biases, we're not doing the people we're leading any favors at all. We have mm. to, you know, we have to be fair to them. And you've mentioned fairness, Raf, and fairness is probably if I was to give any advice to any leader, I would say focus on fairness above and beyond everything else. Because if the brain feels that anything is unfair, you know, mm. we might not like a decision, but if we think it's a fair decision, then we think fair enough. Mm. You know, that's, that's the phrase we use. We may not, you know, embrace every thing that's going on, but if it, we think it's fair, then we are more likely to go with it. But once we decide something is unfair, mm. the brain stimulates and activates structure, which is also activated when we are disgusted. So to us, unfairness is disgusting. It's repellent. And we behave so strongly when something is unfair that mm. we, you know, if we're as a manager, if we're not being fair, then we have no hope of motivating anyone. Wow. We need to be um, a fair manager. Fairness is one of the big things that we need to uh, really focus on in business. This is another gem for me here, just right there with that, with that uh, correlation with disgust. Now, so the way I always talk about and present the fairness, the importance of it, is I ask people to think when they receive feedback, what is the more likely path when they are deflecting it, when deflecting responsibility, one of the most frequent travel path is unfairness, you being unfair with me. And, and here's the thing, even if your feedback is valid and on point, because now I need to preserve my status the way I see it, and please help me out here. Because my job now is to defend myself because you, you literally, your negative feedback diminishes my status. What I'll quickly figure it out is I will discredit the fact, I will focus on the fact that why you are always picking up on my mistakes but never share the positive one. That's unfairness to me. And so yeah. the focus moves away from the value of the feedback into unfairness because now I can quickly connect you never praise my good deeds. You always tell me what's wrong with me. What's your what's your um, what's your intention here? You're not with me. You're against me. You're being unfair. And now I'm consumed with this, as you mentioned, disgust. And so now, the value of the feedback is one of the last things that I'll be thinking, because now the priority is somewhere else. Yes. Yes, and we've then we've then we've then rejected any feedback on the grounds that this manager is unfair, and so. Mm -hmm. Anything that then comes out of their mouth in the future will have that, you know, will be slightly discolored by that view that mm -hmm. we hold. So it, it, it is a horrible, it's a horrible thing to feel that someone has treated you unfairly. And we need to remember this in the animal kingdom, you know, unfairness is quite disgusting. You know, we are, we are animals with very big brains and we have mm. to remember that, you know, we respond in a similar way you know in the animal kingdom if we lose status then it's tantamount to death you know sometimes mm. status you know it's, it's it's a terrible thing so we've got to really understand that and and be whoever we are and what position we hold fairness is critical that whatever mm. we do has to be seen to be fair and creating an environment that is psychologically and physically safe to for that safety is critical. You know, going back to Maslow, which everybody's heard about, but the neuroscience mm -hmm. behind it is that the minute we feel something is unsafe and unfairness makes us feel unsafe, then we, then we, that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing mm. on trying to create an environment where we feel that we can survive in. Yes, I'll. Well, I would love to explore the Maslow as well because there is more neuroscience evidence that actually the pyramids should be turned upside down. But we're running short of the time. There are a few things that I really wanted to touch here because you've mentioned our brain does moves forward or away from something, and there is a few really interesting examples in your book, like very specific sentences and phrases and what's happening, how we tend to respond to them. So the first one is the usage of word don't. And as a parent, yes. I know how easy it is to say to my son, don't do that or don't drop it. Yeah. Now I've learned better recently and I'm trying so hard, which is damn hard to rather than tell him, hey, don't drop it to stay focused. 
right? So kind of like or, different or, sort of... Or, or create, a, create another thing, yes. Focus activity on something else. So yes, now in certain situations, you know, children do need to know that fire is dangerous and... Mm -hmm. You know, once we've once we've gone near a fire, we've seen a burn. We we won't be putting our hand near a fire again. Uh, but the if you look at language and the brain, and language is our tool in business. So we've got to really think about using our words wisely. The Moravian Index, you know, people say it's uh, mm -hmm. fifty five percent body language, eighteen percent tone, and seven percent words. It really, that index, uh, whilst it's good because we do look at body language, it doesn't actually boost the value and the power of language. And I do think we need to really think about the words we use. So the word don't, what comes after the word don't is picked up by the brain. So it doesn't matter what you put in front of the, what you're saying, whether it could be don't, it could be anything, the brain turns words into pictures very easily. Mm. There's a whole area of the brain dedicated to a processing of language, processing of words, even processing of faces. It's just a mm -hmm. remarkable instrument. So the brain will see, it loves to be able to turn words into pictures. So, you know, the, the examples I use are, you know, if I said, don't think about a puppy, don't think about a dinosaur, mm. don't think about a beautiful beach, immediately we've put the picture in the brain. So whatever comes after the word don't then gets seen. And mm -hmm. So the brain has it. And again, what I said, you know, earlier, once you've said it, you can't unsay it. So when we say to children, don't go over there, don't, don't knock that over, uh, don't play with that, don't touch that. Um, and then we think they're so disobedient. We've actually planted the wrong suggestion in their brain. Mm. So, you know, we do this in work. We answer our emails, please don't hesitate to contact me. I mean, what are yes. we saying to people? Hesitation to contact. Don't take this personally. Well, well, I'm going to now. Yes. <laughs> or don't take this the wrong way or don't be upset by what I'm about to say. So we're telling people all the time what to do mm -hmm. because the brain just picks up what it can pick up and mm -hmm. then and then the suggestion is there. So we have to just think about what what is the message we're trying to give? Mm -hmm. The message we're trying to give is feel free to contact me if you have any questions. Yeah. Um, let me know if uh, if you have any concerns. But once you've said the word concern, of course, they're then reminded of the word concern or please yeah. don't worry. They're now worrying. So be very aware of the words we're using because it it gets, you know, it sinks in. And then, yeah. Well, we have to undo the damage we've caused. It's fascinating. So I'm not sure if you came across the book uh, written by David Marquette called Leadership is a Language. And I'm a huge fan of his work and, and I'm practicing my communication style, especially through the emails as well. And so I turn things around and then I'm saying, if you have any concerns or if you don't know something, or if you have any questions, what I'm saying, I'm implying that it's on you. It's your responsibility to be smart enough to know it. What I'm, do, what I'm practicing doing, which is hard to change the habits is let me know if I wasn't clear enough, if I missed something, if, if there is enough clarity on my behalf. And so now what I see with what you just said is it, it works in different ways, but also I'm not creating a undesired picture in your mind. If the second I just say concern, there is that image in our brain that lights up and that's really good to know. So now I can yes. start working on being more specific with messages. In a working environment, in a, in a feedback realm, I advise against using don't uh, because Tend, managers them to say, I don't want to see that happening again, or right, uh, I didn't ask for it, or you, you, right, you didn't. So I, I don't want to see that again happening again. And what's happening here is we're teaching wrong principles in the first place, because we, I need to do what you want or don't want, which is wrong in the first place, because we have to do what's right, not what you want, essentially. But also we are accentuating the hierarchy here, is we're yes, doing things just exactly. because of you. Yes, um, all about power and notions of power. So I always say to leaders, put your egos in your pocket mm. and um, imagine you're holding the brains of people in your hands and think about what you're going to do to nourish those brains. So if you really want those brains to, to work well and, and to do better and better every day, then we need to give, you know, feed the right nourishment and, mm -hmm. so, and, and, you know, Focus on the future. Don't always look back and that's not what I asked for. That's not what I said. That's, you know, be defensive. Put your ego away. If they haven't got the message, then it's on us, that, you know, to the onus is on us to make it clearer. Mm. Yeah. 
we're in that we we carry that power and that's again something we should never abuse it's again so coming back to that it's not what i said in yeah. meaning the status it is different it's not me it's you therefore you're the idiot not not me you need to work harder to understand it because it's not what i said yeah. so reversing that power to change the whole structure and so there are more examples that you use and one of them is the because yeah, word uh, and yeah. the power of that. There is something magical. I make notes around it, but could you just elaborate a little bit more? Yes, of course. What's well, happening behind the The study that was done, and I don't think I put this in the book, but the study that was done was a while ago now is uh, the brain has a really interesting and fascinating relationship with the word because. So mm -hmm. leaders often wait till they've got all their ducks in a row and they've got all the answers to hand and they've got their communication packs, especially during times of enormous change. They wait and they wait and wait and wait. And what they don't realize is that the nature abhors a vacuum. So the brain will find ways of filling the gap. So if mm. we're not giving people information, they will, you know, people will work it out for themselves and they might, might work it out wrongly, but at least they've got something to play with. So the word because is a really interesting one. Now, the study that was done way back in Harvard, I think it was in the 70s, and it, the psychologist tried to, to jump the queue, to jump the line, uh, uh, to get to a photocopier. Mm -hmm. and, you know, in the good old days when we had Xerox machines, people would, would be queuing up to use a Xerox machine. So this, the researchers tried this three times. And the first time they just said, I've got some pages to copy. Can I use, can I jump to the front of the queue? And so they didn't use the word because, but the second two times they used the word because. And when I show the reasons that they gave, people look horrified at the reasons because the reasons don't look like great reasons. So they were things like, uh, can I use the Xerox machine because I have some pages to photocopy? Or can I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush. Now you might be thinking, well, those are ridiculous reasons. Mm. Word because reduces uncertainty. It gives a reason. And the brain has this fascinating relationship with anything that reduces uncertainty. And the word because is able to do that. So my message to people is don't worry about not having a fabulous reason or working out all your messaging. Give people something that reduces uncertainty, particularly during uncertain times. So during huge change or during a global pandemic, for example, give people anything with the word because, because the brain will accept it. It doesn't have to be a great reason. So the first time they tried to jump the queue uh, without the word because, I think they got 60% compliance. But the second two times, that compliance rate went shooting up to 93 and 94%. It's wow. so fascinating. I know. So the word because is so powerful and it's a little, you know, it's a, it's a joining word. It just helps to move us from one state to another, but it creates this reduction of uncertainty. So we do need to find reasons, even if they're small ones, to help explain why we're asking people to do things. So in the realm of feedback, this could be a Jedi-like word, Jedi-like move, because I need to share some feedback. I noticed something, I'd like to share it with you because da-da-da-da-da versus, hey, I noticed this and this, 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 this. That, that interruption would be yes, cause. Except that, except that when we when we give people, uh, what I try and get people to do in the way we give feedback, it should have no mention of the word. Oh. all about helping people towards it. Mm -hmm state with no mention of anything so you know what i'd like you to do the next time is this because what i saw is this so that's how you use the word because mm -hmm. that's how you would use it um you always give a reason what if you're trying to encourage people to do any even slight behavior change or or new improved skill then you give a reason because then they, mm. they accept it the brain will think okay fair enough fair <laughs> enough and now we can Wow. Yeah. Yes. And so there is, there is also a very interesting part about together, just a simple word yeah. together, which is also, I'll share my example in a few minutes, uh, but what's the, what's, what's your take on that using the word together versus you? Well, what happens with what's happened, and this is very, very uh, relevant and pertinent at the moment is that when we feel in any way in a situation of uncertainty or ambiguity like we are at the moment we don't know where the world is heading <clears throat> we're in this state of 
constant flux and not knowing and, and treading water, um, what happens is that we revert to similarity. And, you know, I sometimes call the brain um, Nanny McPhee because we want things mm. when we don't need them and we need them when we don't want them. And, and diversity is one of those things that we actually need. We need it in our gut. We need a diverse diet. And we certainly need diversity for our brain. We need to surround ourselves ourselves with different types of people. We need different inputs coming in all the time. But when we are in a state of un, a constant uncertainty, anything different feels threatening. Anything mm -hmm. outside of our own world of familiarity feels unknown. So we resort and, and we defer to like-minded people. We seek out similarity. We look for people who are like us. We create tribes, you know, we like to be mm -hmm. in our tribe with our people because it feels safe, it reduces uncertainty, and more importantly, we create these incredibly strong outgroups. And we're seeing it across the world at the moment. At the moment in the UK, it's the police versus, you know, the town and mm -hmm. terrible thing, but we are doing it more and more because emotions are heightened. Last year, we had Black Lives Matter. We had groups of people fighting for causes or against other causes. We, we, we really create camps of people who make us feel safe. So the word together, when we are looking now at when we emerge from this pandemic, we've got people who worked from home for the last year or people who've worked in the office for the last year and they've created their own in-groups. We've got people who were furloughed, people who weren't furloughed. We've got people who want to work from home for the rest of their lives, people who mm -hmm. want to be in the office the rest of their lives. We are creating in-groups and tribes all the time because it's our way of creating safety. So the word together and creating a much wider unified workforce, bringing out groups together again, the word together will become a very, very powerful word because we have to get people to identify with a group that's bigger than their in-group. Mm -hmm. The word together has been shown over and over to bond and unite and unify people. So we need to find ways of creating this togetherness as we bring people back together again. So that word's going to be very critical for, it, mm. for the near future. Yeah, and for me, the example from the workplaces would be when we make the mistake, the conversation tends to be, it's them, it's that department, yeah. that yeah. Whole, that team, not me. As a result... They. yes. We but say the they, them all the time and it's, mm. you know, I'm finance, they're legal or I'm sales, you know, they're IT and mm -hmm. we, them and us, we are designed for them and us environments. That's what we are designed to create. Mm. But organizations where they have to create unified cultures, then we absolutely need to look at ways of breaking down these silos and these barriers to try and unify people um, against a common cause um, a common purpose, if you like, you know, a common uh, reason for being in in the world, because then we all then get tied by something, tied together by something greater than just this them and us mentality. Mm. And there is this word that the but so frequently <laughs> use, but, and uh, I battle with it so for so long, yes. and I'm still using it when I'm trying to reverse using it. Um, so could you explain the dynamic here and actually there is a there is a time and place to use it effectively yes what is the story behind the but so but is a negation word but negates everything that comes before it so raf if i said to you i appreciate what you're saying but or i hear what you're saying but or i see your point of view but what i'm actually saying is i'm not listening i don't agree and what i think is far more valid so but negates it all and this is the big problem with the word but. And we tend to use the word but to start our sentences when someone else has made a suggestion. So when I teach creative thinking or innovation, it's the word that crushes creative effort more mm. than other because it's the second person to speak up after an idea has been put forward. Mm -hmm. That person holds the future of that idea in their hands. And if they start their sentence with the word but, what's going to come next is an idea killer. But we don't do that here. But we don't have the right resources. But we tried that last year, didn't work. 
So we need to be very careful. That three-letter word is all-powerful. Mm. But, <laughs> but, but can be used in, an, in a very clever way. So, for example, if I have to give you, if I have to say no to you, and let's face it, we all have to say no in business at some point. We have to be able to tell people that we can't do what they need us to do in the time they need us to do it, or we don't have the right resources. Um, we do need to give bad news. So what we need to do there is use the but to negate the bad news. So what I would say to you is, uh, Raph, I can't get you that report by Friday afternoon as you, when you, as you requested, but what I can do for you is this. So what I'm doing mm. is even more powerful if I say to you, Raph, I can't get you the report you asked for by Friday because, and then you give a reason, then you use but, but what I can do for you uh, is this. The brain's had a reason why you can't do it, and it's negated what's the gone fact that I can't. And you've focused on what you are going to do. So you've moved them forward psychologically into a future state. So that's how you use but. But but is a very, is a very powerful word. And it's the word, I think, that gets used probably more than any other word in business. Yes. I'll, uh, once you start paying attention to how frequently you use, you'd be, yeah. you'd be stunned. When I challenged myself to start noticing and then eradicating it, it was just everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. I'm like, damn, this is hard. This is like 30 odd years reverting a habit. It is like 30 odd years old and it's not yeah. an easy task, but you can see the value and importance in, 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 in everyday everyday life not just the leadership and management yeah. for all of us so very quickly there's just the last one the you and your you also mentioned you the examples your, yeah well it's just about personalizing your messages so when i talk to you as a you as an individual and i use your name but i don't overuse the name so mm -hmm. i wouldn't say raf raf that's just an overuse of the name but if you personalize the messages if you let people know that this isn't a one size fits all. This isn't a sheep dip. This isn't a, a corporate policy that everybody has to adhere to. And we've not taken into account individual circumstances, individual needs. We don't know our own team enough. Then, you know, the messages get blurred and they don't hold much sway with people. But if I mm -hmm. talk to you as an individual and I show that I know you, Raf, and your circumstances, and I understand where things might be an issue, or I understand that this might be a particular challenge, and I figure it out a way with you, and we do it together, then, then we find a way through things together, through adversity, through the hard times, and we build much more resilient systems, um, you know, as, as one. So mm -hmm. that, that's why the word you and your, it, it helps us reach out to people as individuals. Um, so mm. that's, really a big word too can i just mention also the word new because the word new i've had a lot of questions yeah. about recently would that be okay of course yeah yeah wow please the word new the word new because because now we're living in times of change and and you know trying to figure out how to come back stronger after this um after this pandemic and how we're going to create our organizational cultures again uh, the word new is a really interesting one because the brain has a very, very strong novelty bias. So it switches our attention. Anything that's unexpected. So the amygdala bursts into light and life. And I just want to mention the amygdala very quickly because it's a very trendy organ at the moment. It's had a mm. bit of a, it's got a bit of star celebrity status, if you like. And everyone thinks that the, the amygdala is just about uh, picking up anything fearful in our environment. But that's that's not the amygdala's role at all. That The amygdala's role is to highlight and alert the brain to anything new and unexpected. Mm. And the minute that that happens, then another structure, which is at the bottom of our brainstem here called the locus ceruleus, that pumps noradrenaline, which is one of our stress chemicals uh, that, that's activated and released when we're in a situation of stress and high alertness, but it also gets pumped out when we see anything new, anything unexpected, anything unfamiliar. Mm. 
So that's the amygdala's role is to say, uh-oh, I haven't seen this before. Um, and so it, 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 things then start to happen. There's this neurochemical change in the brain. And when we see anything new, when we hear the word new, and let's face it, Apple has built an entire industry on the word new, um, then we switch on. We become very alert. Our pupils mm. dilate to take in more information, and we switch on. Our brain is now really switched on because the noradrenaline is pervasive in the brain. So this is so the word new is is a fascinating thing for us, but <laughs> we need to also be careful of the word new because you know remember the brain is also has learned to be lazy. We suffer mm -hmm. from inertia. It takes a lot to move us away from the paths of least resistance and our well-trodden, you know, routines. Um, so if we're trying to implement something new into our organizations, it, it needs to be new enough to switch on the brain. Mm -hmm. So the word new becomes powerful, but it can't be too new to be too scary for a brain that doesn't like change. Because so it can't predict that much, is it? Enough. Yes, it has to be new, but new enough, not too new. Hmm. So when we work with people to establish new products or new innovations within their organizations, we talk a lot about big disruptions and, you know, big incremental changes or huge um, transformations that can feel very frightening. Hmm. But if we look at marginal gains and 1% improvements, uh, slight ad adaptations of what we're doing, which could have big results, that's much more of a no-brainer for the brain because it's new without being too new and mm -hmm. it's safe enough uh, for us to be able to do it. So we have to get that balance right. So I thought it was worth mentioning that as well because of the world we're in at the moment. Most certainly. Uh, wow. I, I'm, I'm genuinely blown away and fascinated with the fact that we can really start breaking down the sentences and the words and to understand how our brain perceives it and, and, and moves towards or away from, from the, just based on that. There's so much more guys. You got to read the book, why we do what we do. Cause the, I haven't touched on all those examples. It's just, there's just not enough time. And there was the intonation that you spoke, the intonation just blew me completely away. So guys, you got to, even if it's just for the one thing, there's so many examples I was reading line by line with the intonation, how the brain perceives it. I'm like, Wow, like I better start really paying attention how I accentuate things because I may just create loads of harm. So, guys, I'll leave you just with that to go and grab the book because it's just phenomenal. So, Helena, thank you very much for your time today. I've learned so much, made so many notes, and wow, this has been incredibly valuable conversation to me and, and to my audience. Just one quick question Who would be your best coaching leader that you worked for or with uh, in your career? Oh gosh, that is a really, really difficult question to answer. I would actually say to you that the person, well, a number of people have inspired me through mm -hmm. my life, probably not at work actually. Mm. Um, my grandfather was a very big influence in my life and it was his sense of humor mm. and fun that I will always carry with me. And I try and bring that to my uh, teaching, my training, my speaker events, uh, when we do big programs, we always try and get people to play, uh, but also within, you know, within the confines of the organizational context, but to get the brain to really, uh, to, to do its best, it's got to have fun. It's got to be mm -hmm. laughing. When we're laughing, we're learning. So that is one of the big, my, one of the big influences in my life. Um, another big influence was my, an early teacher when I was about five years old, and I remember her very very well, Miss Young. Um, my Latin teacher at school inspired me to learn and really learn Latin. So she gave my, me a real mental workout, Miss Grice. She was my teacher when I was 17. But now the people that really inspire me are the scientists who mm. work, the neuroscientists, the evolutionary scientists, the neurobiologists who give me so much food for thought every single day. And they are my huge inspiration. And if I can do, uh, you know, con contribute even a fraction of what they've done for mm -hmm. for us as a species, then I will feel that I've done well. But they are working effortlessly to 
to get stuff to us, to help us understand our brain better. I've had such a colorful career and I'm still having it that I can't really put my finger on one single person, but I do know the teachers. Teaching is such a, it's such an, you know, they're the, really the unsung heroes. So my teachers at school were fabulous. Mm-hmm. My early teacher, my later teacher, and now the teachers that teach me the science that I embrace and love every single day of my life, mm-hmm. they are hugely inspirational. So that would be my answer to you, Rafael. Great. <laughs> no, great, because the humor is important. And then you're the first one to mention it. And it's impo- it is important because not only because, as you mentioned, we learn more, the environment is a lot more um, friendly. And, and if we go back to the teachers that inspired us to do something, they weren't boring. They were, they were funny in a way and exciting and, and passionate. They were strict, you know, they were, they were important. We, know we need, and we need parameters. We need to have boundaries in our world because if we don't have those boundaries, you know, we, we don't know how far we can go. And they've done studies with children. If they put children to play in a schoolyard and there's no fence, children stay close to the teachers. But if they put a fence around a big field, the children will go and explore. So we need to know how far we can get. We need mm. to explore, but feel safe at the same time. And that's really the greatest gift we can give children. And so the greatest gift we can give people at work as well is this freedom to explore, but also have the safety of mm-hmm. knowing we can explore and, and feel safe at the same time. So, and a laugh, laughter is critical. Finding joy in everything we do is, you know, that's such a big message. And, uh, you know, we, we need to find it because we're only alive once. And so mm. we find that joy in everything we do today. That's a great message. That's a great message to wrap up this episode. Uh, I've connected with you on LinkedIn and I know there is some content on LinkedIn as well. There is your book that I highly recommend everyone to grab it. Where else we can connect with you and learn more from you and about you, Helena? Thank you very much. Yes, that, that's they're the that, that's probably the best place to reach me. And uh, I don't do a huge amount on social media uh, because I I just, you know, I always think if you, people tend to book me through word of mouth and referral. So mm-hmm. that's the way to work. So um, yes, do find me if you want. And uh, hopefully um, I'll see some of you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your time too.